My name is Pastor Steve Winstead, for those of you who uh, haven't had the privilege of meeting, and today we are continuing on in the book of Philippians. We're getting near the end of Philippians. Today we enter Philippians chapter 4, and we just have three more weeks in Philippians. This week, plus two more, and we will be finished with the book of Philippians. So if you would turn there, if you have your Bibles, I invite you to turn to the book of Philippians and stand with me for the reading of God's Word. We'll be reading verse chapter 4, verse 1 through 7 today. And if you have notes, as always, I encourage you to take notes. Please stand for the reading of God's Word. It reads in Philippians 4, verse 1. Therefore, my brothers... Whom I love and long for, my joy and crown. Stand firm thus in the Lord, my beloved. I entreat Judea and I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Yes, I ask also, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel together with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Rejoice in the Lord always. Again, I will say rejoice. Let your reasonableness be known to everyone. The Lord is at hand. Do not be anxious about anything, but in everything, by prayer and supplication, with thanksgiving, let your request be made known to God. And the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. This is the word of God for the people of God. And all God's people said, praise be to God. You may be seated. Lord, your word says that the grass withers and the flowers fade, but the word of the Lord stands forever. And this is the word that was preached to you. Lord, unless you speak today, nothing of significance will be spoken. So speak, Lord Jesus, we ask. Amen. Well, today we've got a fairly simple outline. Paul, in verse 1, he speaks of his love. We've mentioned it over and over again. Paul has a deep love for this church. And then the rest of our passage today, Paul is giving counsel to the church. He's given them advice, counsel how to live out their faith, and his counsel is built upon this command to stand firm. That's our big idea today. Paul is commanding the church in Philippi to stand firm, and he's going to give them five words of counsel in order to stand firm. He tells them to pursue like-mindedness with other believers. He counsels them to rejoice in the Lord, always. He counsels them to be known, that their reputation will be those who are known for their graciousness. And he counsels them to relieve their anxiety through prayer. The fifth one we're not getting to this week, we'll get to it next week. But he counsels them to think of praiseworthy things. One well, verse one, we see Paul's love for this church. He starts off with the word therefore, which is a simple question. You've heard me say it before. Anytime you see the therefore, you want to ask, what's the therefore? Therefore. 
Why did, this put, why did God put this here? And it's connecting us back to what's just been said in this book. Remember the book of Philippians. Paul finds himself in prison. And the church in Philippi sends a financial gift to meet Paul's needs. And Paul writes them back a thank you letter. And in the midst of the thank you letter, he's going to deal with some issues the church is having. Issues of unity. Issues of grumbling. Issues of not following the right example. And here, in the therefore, he has just told them to fix their eyes on heaven. That their mind should be set on heaven, that that's where they keep their focus. Focus on heaven, and as you focus on heaven, therefore, my brothers, here's what you're to do. And the command in this first verse will cover the next whole section. The one command in verse 1 is to stand firm. Stand firm. That's something we need to hear over and over again. Paul knew the church was always going to be tempted to drift. That we as Christians, there's always a temptation to be pulled away from the truth of God's word. To be pulled away from living out the gospel. You see, if we're not standing firm, then we most are drifting. And here, he tells them to stand firm. Paul gives this message over and over again to the church in Galatia. He tells them to stand firm. To the church in Thessalonica, to the church in Corinth, to the church in Ephesus. Three times in Ephesians chapter 6, he says, stand firm. To the church in Corinthians, in Corinth, he says, stand firm. Act like men. Be strong. You see, as Christians, that's what we're commanded to do. We're commanded to be people who stand firm because there's a very real enemy. And the enemy wants to destroy you. He wants you to rest and relax on your faith of days past. He loves to lull us to sleep. In 1 John chapter 2, verse 16, it speaks of three ways that we are tempted. We're tempted by the world, we're tempted by the flesh, and we're tempted by the devil or the demonic. When he speaks of being tempted by the world in Romans 12, 2, it says, Do not be conformed to this world, but be transformed by the renewal of your mind. This world is always pulling you to believe in worldly values. And in Scripture, we see the ruler of this world is the devil. Oh, he's a defeated enemy, and one day Jesus is coming back to claim in full that victory. But until we do, until he does, the enemy, the devil, is running around on this earth, reigning, ruling, causing problems, a defeated enemy still bringing chaos. And the world is always going to be pulling you away from God. The world wants to deceive you. The world likes to take the things of God and turn them upside down. Things that Scripture says, this is glorious and this is of God, the world says, no, do whatever you want. The world calls things that Scripture calls sin good. And when you leave these doors, 
You go to your places of work. You go to your neighborhoods. You turn on the television. You read the news. And you're inundated with this world. No, it says, be transformed by the renewal of your mind. You've got to continually renew your mind on things of God. In Galatians 5.17, second thing that pulls us away is our flesh. He says, for the desires of the flesh are against the spirit. And the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. Your flesh craves this broken, fallen world. You see, when sin entered the world in the garden, it affected all of creation, including our broken, fallen bodies. When you become a Christian, when you trust the gospel, you're a new creation, but your body, you still drag around, Scripture says, a body of death. It still craves sin. It still craves brokenness. So you have to buffet your flesh, fight against your flesh. It's always pulling you. And the third thing he says that John mentions as our enemy that wants to keep us from standing firm is the devil. Now, I venture to say probably none of us have ever been tempted by Satan himself. He's not omnipresent like God. God is everywhere. God is all-knowing. God is all-powerful. Satan is not. He doesn't know everything. He's not all-powerful. He's not everywhere. But let me tell you this. He knows the Word of God better than any of us. And he knows human nature better than you do. And so do his demons. And they know how to tempt you. They'll keep trying things to get you to go astray, to not stand firm. We have a very real enemy. And he's got a legion of demons seeking to destroy us to keep us from standing firm and over and over again Paul tells the church stand firm church that's what we're told to do to stand firm John 10 10 says the thief comes only to kill steal, and destroy that's what he wants to do to you the enemy wants to kill steal, and destroy you we are at war. You see that word stand firm? It's a military term. If you think of an army advancing, marching forward, their commander would say, don't retreat. Don't back up. You stand firm. You keep marching forward. And that's what Paul is saying to the church. Don't retreat. Don't give up ground. Don't fall back. And he does this. He tells them to stand firm because he has a deep love and affection for them. I mentioned it many times. This church in Philippi, Paul loves them. They may be Paul's best church. They're thriving. They're doing well. Yes, they have some issues. But it's a great church. And Paul uses the terms here, whom I love and long for. In verse 1, he calls them his joy and his crown. Paul refers to this church as his joy. And this, one of the major themes of this book is joy. It may be the most prominent theme of this book. And I tell you, as Christians, we are to be joyous people. Not because of our circumstances. Paul's in prison. 
We are joyous people because of our Savior, because of our relationship with Him. And here he says that a part of his joy is the church in Philippi. Paul takes great joy in this church. Another church that Paul planted that was one of his great churches was the church in Thessalonica. Probably the church in Thessalonica or Philippi or two of Paul's better churches that did really well. And in 1 Thessalonians chapter 3 verse 8, hear what he tells the church in Thessalonica. He says, For now we live if you are standing fast in the Lord. Here's what Paul is saying. For Paul... For him to feel like he's alive, for Paul to really be living this life, it's to know the church in Thessalonica standing firm in the Lord. To know the church in Philippi standing firm in the Lord. And you see, for you and I, we really live not as we do what the world tells us to do and focus on self and self-esteem and self-actualization. No, we really live as we die to self and live for the Lord, and live for others. Is there anyone in your life that you can say like Paul did, I really live to know that that person stands firm in the Lord. It brings me great joy to know that God used me in their life and that they are standing firm in the Lord. Some of the greatest joys in my life are to think of some of the People by God's grace, not because of me, but solely by his grace that he's allowed me to spend time with and invest in. And when I see those men and women standing firm in the Lord, it is great joy. You begin to understand what it means when Paul says we really live to know that our investment into your life and your standing firm. Paul calls them his crown. Scripture speaks of five different types of crowns. A crown of victory or imperishable. A crown of righteousness. A crown of glory. A crown of life. And then there's a crown of rejoicing. And that's what Paul's speaking of. A crown of rejoicing. You see, uh, all these crowns have to do with salvation, but when we come in the Lord's presence, these crowns we offer to the Lord as a sacrifice. Lord, thank you for using my time here on this earth for your glory, for your purposes. And we offer the crowns back to the Lord. And here, Paul says the church in Philippi is a crown of joy for him that he'll give to the Lord. He calls him his beloved. Now how do you stand firm? He's going to begin to give some counsel to this church in Philippi. And I think this counsel, it still holds true for us today. So as we walk through these first four words of counsel today, these first four pieces of counsel, I want us as a church to be asking, Lord, what are you saying to me? Here's your temptation as you hear these. Your mind's going to start to go, so-and-so could really hear this. If so-and-so knew this, they would treat me better. If so-and-so knew this, they would act differently. If so-and-so knew this, their life would be different. No, ask the Lord, what are you saying to me in these? And his first word of counsel in verse 2 is to pursue like-mindedness with other believers. 
Oh, the enemy loves to get two Christians sideways with one another. He delights in it. And listen to what he says in verse 2. I entreat Eutyche, I entreat Syntyche to agree in the Lord. Now, throughout this book, Paul's been alluding to this problem of unity. People are not getting along, and they've been grumbling and complaining, and they're dividing, and now he mentions by name these two women. Can you imagine when the church in Philippi received the letter from Paul? Their excitement. We sent a gift to Paul. He sent us back a thank you letter. And the elder is standing before the church reading the letter to the body. They're hearing it, being encouraged, being challenged. And then here, these two women sitting there. And all of a sudden, they hear their names. And Paul says, I know that you two are not getting along. Can you imagine the weight of that? What these women felt as he encourages them to agree in the Lord. There's been disunity among these women and it's spreading. Enemy loves to take two Christians and get them sideways with one another. A Christian sideways with someone who's not a believer? Well, that's sad, but we know we don't think the same. We know we live differently. That's almost to be expected. But two Christians sideways with one another, that's a grievous thing. And it's a thing that gives testimony to the outside world that believers can't get along and work together. And Paul here says that they are to agree in the Lord. Now I want you to know something. These two women are not having a theological issue. Paul is very stern with churches when they struggle with theological error. In particular, theological error with the gospel. When they say, this is the gospel and it's not. No, that's not their issue. Their issue is something else. We're not fully sure of what their issue is, but whatever it is, it's leading to grumbling and disunity. And in verse uh, 3, it reveals some more about this. It says, yes, I ask you, true companion, help these women who have labored side by side with me in the gospel with Clement and the rest of my fellow workers whose names are in the book of life. Now that verse reveals a lot about these women. First, their name is in the book of life. Book of life is mentioned several times in the Bible. And it's the book that you want, you want your name in this book more than any other book. Okay? You hope and pray your name is there and the way your name is securely written there is by the blood of Jesus as you trust him for all who have repented of their sins acknowledge that they are hopeless without Christ and thrown their trust and faith in him their names are written in the book of life so know that these two women are believers. They are Christians. Secondly, it tells us that they labored with Paul side by side for the gospel. These are women. They're not just casual church attenders. They're not just those who show up, sit, hear a message, and go out and live their life. No, these are those who go and labor and strive for the advancement of the gospel. 
Those who go and strive to see those who don't know the Lord hear the message of the gospel. Hear the glorious message that while we were yet sinners, Christ died for our sins. Let me tell you, soon, as you start living your life for the glory of God and the advancement of the gospel, the enemy is going to come at you. Oh, a Christian who just shows up at church every week, sits here and then leaves, the enemy's already going, they're not causing any problems. But you start living with the gospel message on your lips. You start praying for the lost. You start asking the Lord, Lord, who in my life doesn't know you? How can I share the gospel with them? Can they come to know you, Lord? I want them to know you. I pray that you'll give me the opportunity. When you start doing that, the enemy doesn't like it. An enemy's delighting to get Eutyche and Syntyche divided. But notice Paul's counsel. He says, true companion, help these women. Now, we're not sure who true companion is. It may be this guy Clement, but he tells them with the rest of the fellow workers, they are to help these women. They've got a problem and they need help. Two of the most influential Christians of the 1700s was a man named John Wesley and George Whitfield. John Wesley and George Whitfield were college friends. They were in this group called the Holy Club. And the Holy Club, what they would do is they would gather every week to pray, to read the Bible, and hold one another accountable to spiritual disciplines. It was a great thing. They became so dedicated to this that they became known for their method of spiritual discipline. And people begin to call them the Methodist. Well, these two guys, John Wesley and his brother Charles, left to go to the colony of Georgia in what is the current day United States. And he left his ministry with George Whitfield. George Whitfield was in charge of all these groups, these small discipleship groups spreading throughout England, these small discipleship groups within the church that were setting the church on fire. The Lord was using them. And George Whitfield began to preach outdoors, which was quite scandalous at the time. And George Whitfield, the Lord had blessed him with a voice like no other. He could preach to a group of 30,000, some of them more than a kilometer away, and everyone could hear him. And he went throughout the United States preaching. He went throughout England preaching first. And when the Wesley brothers returned, the Methodist movement had exploded in England because of George Whitfield. Well, George Whitfield decided to go to the United States and preach in the United States. At that time, it wasn't known as the United States. It was just colonies. And his preaching sparked the fire that God used to start what was called the First Great Awakening, where the majority of the country became Christian. In fact, it was estimated that as many as 80% of people living in the colonies had heard George Whitfield preach. Well, when George Whitfield returned to England, him and John Wesley had a disagreement over two theological issues. Now, they're important theological issues. 
but they're not essentials. They're not ones that we go, oh, it's like you don't believe the Bible. Oh, it's like you don't believe that Jesus is the way, the truth, and life. And this division became so deep that these two men would not work together for the rest of their lives. These two men that were some of the most influential Christian leaders in the 1700s, who were good, dear friends, would cease to co-labor together because of a disagreement. Oh, if someone could have helped them, helped them to be humble and to labor together. Yet 30 years after this agreement, when George Whitfield died, he asked John Wesley to preach his funeral. And John Wesley preached the funeral of his dear friend George Whitfield with tears, mourning would have been lost. Mourning that these two great saints had allowed themselves to get so sideways that though God used their lives, how much more could have used it together? Sometime later, someone came and asked John Wesley, do you think you'll see George Whitfield in heaven? And John replied, no. No, I, I don't think I'll see George Whitfield in heaven. I think George Whitfield will be so close to the throne of Jesus Christ that I won't have an opportunity to get to him. What he was saying is this friend he had a disagreement with. He knew his love for the Lord and his passion for the Lord and that he was in heaven near to the Lord, nearer than John Wesley ever thought he would be. Brothers and sisters, Let's not divide. Oh, there are things to divide over. The Word of God, the nature of Christ, salvation, yes. But let's not divide over these other issues. Let me ask you, do you see yourself as a threat to the unity of the church? Do you view yourself as a threat to the unity within the body of Christ? I suspect most of you are sitting there saying, no, not me. And if that's what you're saying, the enemy has already deceived you. Each one of us in here is a threat to the unity of the body of Christ. The enemy would love to take us and use us as an agent to split, to divide, to bring disunity. Some of you here, there's another Christian that you're not getting along with. There's an issue that maybe you just never dealt with. Maybe you just gave up. May it not be. No, we are to seek reconciliation. Let me ask you, will you be bold enough to ask for help? That's what Paul says here. Paul tells these, the church in Philippi, help these women. Eunuchy and Syneche, they need help. They're not getting along. If you're not getting along with another brother or sister in Christ, seek out help. Maybe it's from someone who's discipling you. Maybe it's from a small group leader. Maybe it's from someone who's older and wiser, been walking in the faith longer. Maybe it's one of our elders here at the church. Maybe it's me. You can talk with other people. 
but sometimes we need help. That takes a lot of courage and a lot of humility to say, I just can't figure this one out. Let me ask you this. Are you willing to help other Christians who can't get along? Now that sounds scary. I'm not a person who likes conflict. My, my, my nature is to sort of want to avoid it. But for the body of Christ and for the glory of God, we speak the truth in love. And there's times that we have to sit down with a couple of Christians and say, hey, let me help you. You may not know what to do. Let me tell you what you could do. You could take two Christians who are not getting along and take them here to Philippians chapter 4, verse 2 and 3 and say, let's read this. Paul says that they need help. And then you could take them to Philippians chapter 2, verses 1 through 11, where Paul speaks of Christ humbling himself. And just tell them, say, go read this. Take a week, each of you. Read this passage two or three times a day and ask the Lord, what are you asking me to do? Because you can go no lower than Christ. You can humble yourself no further than Christ has humbled himself. Now we're to strive for unity. That's one of the ways we stand firm. Church, the enemy wants to divide this place. And he wants to use you to do it. He wants you to be the one that brings division. May it not be. May we be the ones who bring healing and wholeness. Second counsel he gives is in verse 4. He says, rejoice in the Lord always. I will say it again, rejoice. Oh, I love this. Rejoice in the Lord. That's counsel to us. We are to have our joy set in the Lord Jesus Christ. We are to be a joy-filled people. Happiness. I've heard it said that that's based on what's happening, what's going on out here. Joy is not based on your circumstances. A Christian who is not tasting joy is a Christian who is out of line with the Lord. If you're not tasting joy, realize it, it's not your circumstances. You may think it's that person you live next door to. It's the reason you don't have joy. You may think it's because of the place you work. And it's hard and it's challenging. Times you don't feel appreciated or loved. You may think it's because of that family relationship that's got in sideways. That's the reason you don't have joy. No, it's not. Because your joy is not based on circumstances. It's based on the Lord. And if you aren't tasting it, it's an issue with you and the Lord. You need to come and repent. Seek His face. Trust Him. Rejoice in the Lord. Stand firm. Perhaps one of the most tragic testimonies of a Christian is a harsh, negative, callous Christian. He's always looking at the bad. He's always counting the difficulties. He's just saying, I'm, I'm, I'm just keeping it real. No. We're to be loving, gracious. We are to have a joy in us that's contagious, Christian. Now, some personalities more naturally give off the appearance of happiness. It's not saying you have to go around smiling and laughing all the time. 
but there should be a joyfulness to your countenance. And if there's not, don't think the issue is anywhere else other than you and the Lord. If you're not tasting joy, it's you and Jesus. You may be having your prayer time every day. You may be reading the Bible every day. You may be doing all the things that you're supposed to do, but something is amiss. And Paul's going to address what some of those are next. And the third piece of counsel he gives, well, and the fourth one, but in the third one he says, be, uh, be gracious. Listen to this. He says, let your reasonableness, in verse 5, be known to everyone. That word is better translated, perhaps, as graciousness. What that means is we're not self-seeking. We're not contentious, difficult people. We're not people who are always seeking retaliation when somebody hurts us. You hurt me, therefore I want you to hurt. We're people who are willing to endure injustice, disgrace, and mistreatment without retaliation, bitterness, or vengeance. That's the type of people we're to be. And let me tell you, that's hard. When someone's hurt you or done you wrong, your flesh delights to see them hurting. Realize, if you take joy in someone else's suffering, your flesh is winning. The enemy's winning. When someone hurts us, when someone's wronged us, here's how we approach it, the fourth thing. He says, relieve our anxiety through prayer. Listen to this. Verse 6, do not be anxious about anything. Now, even as I mentioned that word anxiety, some of you right now, you're feeling the sweat break out on your hands. Just thinking about anxiety, you're going, you get anxious easily. You're an anxious person. And here, Paul commands us to not be anxious about anything. God says, there is nothing worthy of your anxiety. We're commanded to not be anxious. Are we very good at that? Probably not. We struggle with that. We continually take our anxiety to the Lord. Our anxiety should be one of those things that leads us to pray continually, to always be praying. Listen, he gives us how we handle our anxiety, but in everything. Don't be anxious about anything. There's nothing worthy of your anxiety. Your work situation, your situation, the cancer diagnosis, the loss of a loved one, challenges of COVID, challenges of political instability, challenges of fighting, war. Don't be anxious about any of those. Easier said than done. But here's how he tells us to handle it. In everything, in everything by prayer and supplication. You bring everything to the Lord in prayer. And that word supplication has the idea of humbly begging the Lord. It's like that widow that Jesus tells a parable about. She went to the judge and the judge kept saying no, no, no. And she kept begging, begging, begging until the judge relented. 
No, if you have anxiety about something, you beg the Lord. Lord, I want to give this to you. You give it to him over and over and over again. And as soon as you taste that anxiety again, you bring it right back to the Lord. But here's the big key to dealing with it. Listen to this. Prayer and supplication with thanksgiving. Oh, the Christian is to be a thankful person. A Christian who's not grateful, we're living outside of our, our design. We are to be thankful, grateful people. The Lord has saved us. He's redeemed us. We're a new creation. If you struggle with anxiety, and I know that's probably the majority of people in this room, and probably the rest are deceiving themselves, Start keeping a list of things you're grateful for. Count your blessings. Lord, thank you that I had a meal to eat today. You have provided for food. Lord, thank you that I've got a roof over my head. Lord, thank you that I've got clothes I can wear. Lord, thank you that I have relationships with other people. Though they may be challenging at times, thank you that I'm not alone. We can count our blessings. And most of all, as Christians, the greatest blessing that we should wake up daily thanking the Lord for is, Lord, thank you. I'm not left alone in my sin. It's a hell-bound wretch, but that you came and paid the price for me to reconcile me to God. Thank you for saving me. Thank you for redeeming me. In light of salvation, we have no justification to complain. In light of our salvation, what can we complain about? What can we be anxious about? That anxiety reminds us that we need to pull back to the Lord in prayer and thank Him. Thank the Lord. With thanksgiving, we let our requests be known to God. God wants to hear our request. So here's what you do. When you're anxious, pray, beg on your knees before the Lord with thanksgiving, and here's what God's going to do. I love this. Listen to what God's going to do in verse 7. And the peace of God. The peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and minds in Christ Jesus. God will give you a peace in the midst of the storm, in the midst of the terrible uh, sickness, in the midst of struggling in your job, in the midst of struggling with that rebellious teenager. God will give you a peace that no one else can understand. Everybody will look and say, how can they be calm in this? How can they have a peace? Because in everything, with prayer and petition, you're taking it to the Lord with thanksgiving. Thessalonians 5.18 says, Give thanks in all circumstances. Not some circumstance. You're having a bad day? Thank you, Lord, for a bad day. Because I get to trust you more. You're having difficulty with someone else? Thank you, Lord. Now I get to trust you and watch you work it out. Thank you that you have brought reconciliation. May that be lived out with me and this other person. Thank the Lord in everything. And he will guard your heart and mind in Christ.
It's a peace that no one in this world will ever understand. When you're anxious, you pray, you beg with thanksgiving, and God gives you peace. He gives you peace. He's the one who gives it to you. You can't manufacture it. You can't make it appear. It's a gift that he gives you, and he guards your hearts and minds. All these are counsels that Paul gives for standing firm. Church, may we stand firm. Enemy doesn't want us to stand firm. Picture of that is, have you ever walked up a stream? Maybe some of you have, have been in a, a stream where water's running. Have you ever gotten in a stream where the water's running maybe up to your chest, up to your waist, and you feel the pressure of that river, that stream running against you? And as you try to walk upstream, it takes effort. It takes work. It takes diligence. But you know what else takes work? If you're standing in a running stream, it's not effortless. If the water's moving and you're standing there, you have to work to stand still. And you know what the enemy wants you to do? Kick up your feet and just relax. And do you know what happens as soon as you kick up your feet in a stream? You start drifting. You start drifting away from the goal. The goal that Paul says he presses on toward the goal of Christ. Church, may we press on. Some of you here, you've kicked up your feet. You've trusted Christ and now you're just relaxing. But if you are not standing firm in the midst of the pressures of this world and this culture, if you're not standing firm in the Lord, then you are drifting from Him. Those are the only two options. You see, to drift from the Lord takes no effort. To stand firm in the Lord, you pursue Him, you seek Him. He does the work. He's gracious. You're secure in Him. But we have to continue in this life to labor and work as we pursue the Lord. Salvation, there's no works involved in salvation. Christ did all the work. Growing in Christ's likeness, living out our faith in this world, it's going to be challenging and difficult. That's why we bring it all to him in prayer. Let's go to the Lord in prayer, church. God, I thank you for this body. It is a joy to get to open your word. We rejoice over your word. We rejoice that you have redeemed us who are sinful through the blood of Jesus. And Lord, I make no assumption. In fact, I feel pretty certain that there are those hearing me today who have never really trusted you. Maybe they believe the facts about you. They have some information about you, but as far as really trusting in the gospel to the point that they are a new creation, that hasn't happened. No, Lord, you said that we repent of our sin. We turn from our sin and run to you and that we are a new creation when we do that, that we're alive. So Lord, I pray if there's any that don't know you today, that today would be the day of salvation. And Lord, I know that there are many here today not getting along with another Christian. 
The enemy delights to see them sideways with another believer. Help them to be humble. To go and seek out that brother and sister. To seek to be reconciled as best they can. To be willing to ask somebody else to help. And Lord, everyone in this room has tasted anxiety. Lord, none of us are immune from anxiety. We've all experienced it. We thank you that you forgive us in our anxiety that we trust ourselves. Lord, may we trust you. May we come to you with prayer and petition, with thanksgiving. Lord, we have so much to be thankful for. We're thankful for this church. We're thankful for our brothers and sisters in Christ. We're thankful that you meet our basic needs. We're thankful that you allow us to live here in this great country, Ethiopia. We're thankful for this nation. Lord, we pray for this nation. We pray that the election, that the strife and struggle that you would work in and through this, we don't understand it, but we know our hope is in nothing of this world. It's in Jesus Christ. So Lord, for the hurting, for the suffering, for the broken, meet their needs. We pray that you'd come to the rescue. And if you choose to use us to be the one who comes to the rescue in your name, may we be ready. Lord, it's a joy to be called a child of God and to know Jesus. May we delight in that. It's in the name of Christ we pray. Amen.